Uh, I recognize that today is going to look and feel a little bit different. It is not my intent to try and make things heavier than what they already are. No doubt what I share today will be incomplete and insufficient as it relates to just what this conversation requires. But it's my hope that here today, though we're not addressing necessarily anything new, that we are beginning something as a church. And uh, while certainly there are many perspectives that I could dive into here this morning, from a biblical perspective around how we are to look at the world as a whole and to consider all the different things that are happening, there is one issue in particular that I believe deserves a light to be shown on it a little bit here this morning. What I would say to you today is that I feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable this morning. And I know based off of many conversations that I have had throughout this week with many of you and many who aren't here this morning, there are many of us who are feeling the same way. I think many of us long for an escape, whether our constant prayer that Jesus would return or things as simple as just wanting to come to church and experience some normalcy in the midst of chaos like our fellowship that we enjoy with one another, that we hold so dear. But as I've shared with you, today is not one of those days where we can escape what's happening in the world. As I shared before, I don't want to pander this morning. I don't want to be artificial or insincere. And I know that there is risk for me as a white pastor addressing issues of race that has the potential to be there. But friends, what is happening in our country And our own community cannot be simply referenced in a prayer this morning and then move on and treat things like it's just any other day. To do so would be to abdicate my role as a pastor and to fail to use the pulpit to truly influence and educate for the purpose of meaningful gospel-centered change, which sadly has been the case for countless pulpits for far too long. I don't pretend to be better. I don't pretend to suggest that what I'm doing is somehow unique compared to many other pastors who no doubt are addressing these difficult issues this morning as well, but the church has got to step up. I've long said that many issues facing this nation today, many failures of our government, in fact, are not their failures, but rather are due in large part because the church and pastors have failed to do their jobs. While I recognize this morning that the work to be done is far greater than what I will accomplish in 30 to 40 minutes of sharing with you today, we must begin somewhere. It's written in 1 Peter in chapter 4 verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What does it mean there as Peter writes that at a time for that particular church that Peter was writing to, they were enduring suffering and they were willing to accept the fact that we as the church are going to endure this so that it brings about change in our lives and we can impact our culture for the cause of Christ. That's what it means when he says the judgment begins in the house of God. Lord, deal with us first so that we can make a difference. A time of suffering has come upon this nation in a number of forms. And it ought to be the people of God, above all else, his church, who receive that. Who look to that suffering and say, Lord, purify us through this. Bring change and equip us to truly make a difference. So yes, I am uncomfortable this morning. And I'm uncomfortable because it has been a year where so much of how we do life has been turned upside down. 
As we gather this morning, I am grateful for those of you who are here, but also as a pastor, I long to have more of our body together, friends and family in Christ that I've not seen for weeks in some cases. It's uncomfortable that our nation is as divided as ever over things that we can't even get straight answers on. These are the minimal things, but you can't even shop in a store these days without sort of relearning how this whole thing's to be done. Our graduates are having virtual ceremonies. It's unfortunate. Strange things. There's just a tension that is building. And it's much worse than that. As I alluded to on Wednesday night, domestic violence, addiction, the rate of suicide, the growing issue with mental health. And then there's the political rhetoric, the fighting amongst elected leaders, which only creates a vacuum of leadership and unifying voices, which just leaves people feeling more hopeless. And then as you sense this sort of powder keg of a country nearing its ignition point, on come the numerous accounts of blatant racism which sparks national outrage, which then leads to more violence and increasing divide. Friends, we should be, at the very least this morning, uncomfortable, if not downright angry and hurt. I was reading an article over the weekend by Philip Holmes, and he writes, We should all be uncomfortable and feel uncomfortable about the injustice in our country. For many Christians, facing the reality that America still has a race problem is uncomfortable. Until we are able to listen to the cries of black advocates, sympathize with black mothers, and express righteous anger over dead black bodies, we might remain comfortable. But that would be a poor substitute for the love to which we've been called to. The past few weeks, and this week in particular, our country has been confronted with a problem. And it is not a new problem. It has been a problem that has been simmering for some time. Recently, the death of individuals like Ahmaud Arbery, a young black man out for a jog who was senselessly gunned down, created more attention for what would then follow in other situations like the death of Breonna Taylor in Louisville and of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And sadly, these situations are not something new. Rather, they are increasingly visible and are exposing that America still has a race problem. And this morning, we cannot out of ignorance or apathy or selfishness or otherwise dismiss these things, or we as the church, as the body of Christ, would be fundamentally failing at what we have been called and what we've been created to do. As a believer of Jesus Christ, you have been called from darkness into light. You are to live by a new standard which is established by Jesus. You have been reconciled to God and have been given the ministry of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul deals with that in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. He says this, Therefore, you know this verse, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And listen, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you have a sense today, church, of what has been given to us and the responsibility that's been bestowed upon us to go forth and be ambassadors, representatives of Jesus Christ, imploring others who are lost in our community to be reconciled to God? That's a responsibility that we have, church. But I would ask this morning, how can we be about the business of reconciliation if we don't even know or won't recognize our own blind spots and the ingrained stereotypes and racism that exists even within us, which thereby means it also exists within the church? Now, you might say, and some might say, well, just as we ourselves are reconciled to Christ, the solution to all of this is, is Jesus. And we just need to go and share Jesus with people, which is true. But listen, the solution is Christ. The solution to all of this is the word of God. But we cannot minister cross-culturally if we don't even seek to know or to understand what someone who is different than me is facing or feeling. You might say, but the gospel transcends all of that. Yes, it does. But not if it is preached or shared from a place of ignorance that is colored entirely by our own worldview. We must, if we seek to bring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on the issues of our day, to see healing and reconciliation, if we truly want to be ambassadors, we must be willing to cross lines of comfort Enter into another's world in humility, not losing or changing who we are or who we've been created to be or who God has made us to be, but to be willing to hear from another who God has made them to be and what their experience is. The deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, who, by the way, are representatives of many other names, many other deaths, their deaths were unnecessary. They were tragic. And they should cause every one of us, especially those who are part of the body of Christ, to mourn and to further wrestle with and grapple with, Lord, what is happening in our world today? But here is the sad thing. And it's the thing that tells me that we are not, even within the church, yet where we should be. I point no fingers this morning. This is to all of us, myself included. Far too many people Still today, while they may be willing to express regret over the loss of these individuals, they are far quicker to express their frustration with protests that have turned violent or to say things like, we should wait to hear all of the facts. Or, I'd like to know what Arbery was doing in that house before this happened. And when we say things like that, that not only does it reveal just how blind we are to this issue, Because in saying those things, what we fail to do is recognize the gross injustice of a young man gunned down by vigilantes or the brutality and violence that's unnecessarily inflicted upon a human being, both of whom, I might add, and countless others, are made in the image of God. They are image bearers. Ahmaud Arbery could have done anything in that house, whatever it may have been. And I'm not suggesting he did anything. I don't think he did. Whatever happened there doesn't justify what happened after. And we've got to begin to separate these things because it's foolish when we talk that way. With such comments and beliefs, whether they're stated or kept internal, 
What we fail to do is to recognize that our brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom are of a different color and background, that they face challenges in this world that others know nothing about, including me. And while, yes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and yes, our identity ultimately ought to be in Christ and in Christ alone, no other adjective that goes before that, no blank type of Christian, right? It shouldn't be that way, but the fact is, it's often a necessary process that takes time to get someone there, and it requires humility on everyone's part. In the article that I mentioned by Philip Holmes, he writes of his wife, Jasmine, and her new book, which is entitled Mother to Son, Letters to a Black Son on Identity and Hope. And he includes the following excerpt. My fear for you, my son, is not so much that you will be lynched like Emmett Till. Make no mistake, I will train you as I was trained to respond to authority in a way that will make you appear as non-threatening and compliant as humanly possible. And I will hope and pray that this compliance will serve as some kind of barrier against the brutality that your young black form may incur. I will watch every news story of a black man gunned down by police with a twinge of fear, wanting so badly to trust that those charged with protecting our communities would not harm you without just cause, but fearing every scenario where they might. Friends, this is real. To dismiss it or to suggest that it is not real is foolishness. And now I know that I do not fully, and I'm going to put this out there multiple times, I don't fully understand this. This is something that is foreign to me in my life. And I cannot fully understand that, but I ought not dismiss it. Holmes goes on to write, Jasmine is not alone. Mothers of black sons across the country live in constant fear. It is easy to shrug and say this fear is irrational if we raise our sons right and they respect authority. However, there are a couple problems with this view. First, parents are helpless unless God intervenes and opens a child's eyes to the beauty of the gospel. Sometimes this happens later in life. If a wayward son's life is taken prematurely because he didn't follow an officer's command to the letter, what a tragedy that would be. Second, he says, it may expose a popular but immoral view that says the victim has to be a saint in order to receive sympathy. When we allow our view of justice to be persuaded by footage of the victim in his best moments or footage of him in his worst, we're not thinking biblically about justice. Was he a law-abiding person? If an injustice occurred against him, it should not matter. Why? Because he is a person. Christian, we must open our eyes and our ears to the Lord first and to each other second. So what am I suggesting that we do? I can't stand before you this morning and suggest that I have all of the answers as to how to accomplish this work. But I know that scripture itself makes clear that as far as the church is concerned, if we are a surrendered people, that we will have unity and love. And that unity and love will be a demonstration to a lost world. John chapter 13, verse 35 says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. So I would say and recognize that I have my own blind spots and I can't relate to many things that are happening today, but I want to, and I want to learn and I want to grow. 
Not simply so that I can say that I've played a part in racial reconciliation, but rather that I've brought glory to Jesus by letting go of my grip on my idols in this world and surrendered myself to him. Because rest assured, our blind spots will reveal our idols. So I would welcome many of you to come and to share your story with me, to share with the elders in the church. It is our intent to foster and to facilitate dialogue in the weeks ahead. And some of you we may call upon to say, will you meet with us and will you talk with us? One thing that is very much absent in our world today is civil discourse. It is my firm opinion and belief that social media is a large contributor to the absence of that. We need to be able to sit down and talk. And you might say, even within the church, we talk all the time. But do we? Do we really talk? Do we really share? Do we really open up about some of the experiences that have made us who we are? Right, wrong, or indifferent, even when we know our certain experiences that we know, oh, the Lord is telling me I've got to move beyond this, that this shouldn't define me anymore, but it's still there. Who ought you to work through that with other than your brothers and sisters in Christ? We want to foster and to facilitate this dialogue, to have it geared towards understanding so that at the very least, Our local representation of the big church, this small portion of it, might serve as a beacon of hope and a demonstration of Christ's love in our community. And this must happen. And we must pray for what else the Lord would have us to do because it can't simply be about my words here this morning. And finally, we must take Scripture seriously. Today, we were to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, finishing out that chapter. We're well into our service here, but I'm still going to ask you to turn there. This is the, uh, the narrative of Christ's birth. We'll call it Christmas in May. I still want us to read through this, and we're not going to spend much time here, but I believe that it serves as a necessary platform for us to consider. I think it's fitting that the Holy Spirit had us in Matthew 1 still today. In Matthew chapter 1, in verse 18 through 25, I want us to read this together. It's a passage of Scripture and a story that many of you, no doubt, know quite well. As we read together in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. In an effort to just quickly summarize this particular section here, We know this birth narrative. This is the nativity story. This is uh, every year we we often consider this passage around Christmas time because this is it. This is is Christmas when Christ was born. And oftentimes, and you can go back and listen to this past year's teaching on this. Go back on YouTube to December of 
of 2019. You can, you can listen to it if you want to know some of the, the other details and aspects of what's included here. Things like looking at it from Joseph's perspective. Imagine Joseph in this moment as he's betrothed, he's, he's engaged. I mean, this is, this is binding. And he's confronted with a situation where his soon-to-be wife is pregnant with child. And she's told him, well, don't worry. It's from the Holy Spirit. That's got to be a tough one for Joseph to swallow there. And so we consider this. We look at this story and the way in which Joseph, being a good man, a just man, he had two options. He could divorce her publicly, which would likely result in her death, or he could put her away secretly and quietly. And of course, the angel comes to him and appears to him. And we see here in Scripture what a what a wonderful example of adoption on the part of Joseph as Jesus comes into the world, making him his own. And to consider the, the stories of both of these individuals and, and what they went through and, and much of that. But today, that's not the aspect that I want us to focus on as we consider this passage of Scripture. You might say, well, what is it that we're to look at here? How does this apply to today? I'd ask you for a moment to hone in on focus there on verses 21 through 23. Let's read them again. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Do we have a sense? Because we often lose it. We can often in our Christian world and the bubbles that we sometimes live in, we can take statements like this for granted. Do you know that with Jesus, we had God with us? That means that Jesus, who was there before the beginning of time, who was seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, said, I'm willing. I'm willing to humble myself because of my love for them and go and enter into that world. And even under the point of death, so that I can reconcile them. If we are to be ambassadors of Christ, what might it require? That we humble ourselves. That we humble ourselves. That wherever we see our rightful place, whatever we think we deserve, whatever we think we've earned, whatever it is, that we'd be willing to say, I will put this aside and humble myself in order to reconcile a people to God, because that is a mission that I have been given as a believer of Jesus Christ. You see this, when we talk about love, when we talk about unity, these are the things that inform that understanding. There's another passage of scripture that I wanted us to look closer at here that really helps us to better grasp this. And it's found in Philippians chapter two, if you turn there in Philippians chapter two. I want us to read first Philippians chapter two, Let's go ahead and read just verses 6, 7, and 8 to begin. Who, it says here, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who, being in the form of God, he's speaking here of Jesus, in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was equal with God. Again, he could have laid hold of that. He could have said, I, this is my rightful place here in the throne of heaven. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You see, this is the demonstration of humility that we are to mirror. Am I to die for someone, you say? Greater love hath no man than he who would lay down his life for another. So perhaps, yes. 
But at the very least, being willing to let go of that thing that you may say, I deserve this, I'm equal in this way, whatever it may be, that we are willing to humble ourselves because as you look here, let's just go ahead and look at verses 1 through 8 now together. It says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That is hard to do. Let's just be honest. It's hard to do. It's hard enough to do that when you know someone and you're similar to someone and you get along with someone. It's even more difficult when you don't know them, when they have a different background, when you have different opinions. But notice here, Jesus didn't give that qualifier. Paul didn't give that qualifier. When Jesus said and when, when asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself as long as they look like you, act like you, talk like you, and believe like you. No. It was very clear. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no qualifier here. There's no caveat. It's a commandment to have the mind of Christ. To esteem others as better than yourself. Racism, by definition, and I'm not quoting out of Webster's, but the basic concept of it is that you look at someone else, in, in the case of racism, you look at a different race, and you say, I'm better. I'm better. They are inferior to me. Yet here it says that we are to look to others and esteem them as better. What we are called to as believers is literally the absolute opposite of that. No qualifier. Verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Once again, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Praise God for that. And then as he continues, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what happens when Humility is demonstrated in this way. Jesus, in his willingness to leave his rightful place in heaven, to humble himself, to put others above himself, results in then his exaltation where he is placed once again at the right hand of the Father where he rightly belongs in heaven. Now you may say, well, do we do this so that we can be exalted? Yes, we do. Not in this life, but so that we can have the promise of what's to come in eternity. We strive to be the church because there is great reward. We bring glory to him and we can have confidence of what we have for eternity with him. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess, when we will be a part of that amazing worship experience. Listen, Jesus is coming back. Amen. And he will make all of this right. 
But until he does, we have work to do. We have work to do. And so please note, when he does come back and he makes it right, race, ethnicity, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. The way we look today, we just look that much better then, okay, in those glorified bodies. But it's not like these things that we look at and we, and we consider as divisions amongst us, that that goes away. No, that's how we were created. It's the racism that goes away, praise God. In Revelation in chapter 7 and verses 9 and 10, John gets the chance to peer into the throne room of heaven. And he describes it here writing this. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That's all people. All nations, all tribes, all peoples, and all tongues. Friends, I love this church for so many reasons. But I will say that I love this church for a key reason today. And that is because we are, in fact, different in so many ways. We are a diverse church. Yet, we enjoy a unique fellowship that is wrought by the Holy Spirit. And I am grateful even as we leave here on Sundays, and if you hang around long enough, you begin to see Puerta del Cielo come through the doors as they come in to have their afternoon services. As we interact together, and many of them not speaking English, knowing limited words, we know enough to say, God bless you. I love you. Praise God. Because we too are brothers and sisters in Christ. It encourages me that there is yet a representation of the true church in this world that we have visibility to on a regular basis. But we must, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4 and verse 3, we must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. His writing there means we've got to work at this. As I shared with some of you that watched my video to you last night, I don't know what now tomorrow will bring. I don't know what doors the Lord may open for us to have broader community impact. There may be many, there may be none at all. I don't know. But I know this much. In this place, we will endeavor to keep the bond of peace. We will work hard to understand, to learn, to value to appreciate one another, what makes us who we are, what makes us unique, and the beautiful, the beautiful truth that in all of that, we are also one in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting to me here because as Jesus makes this declaration, as he says to them, here is a new covenant. He's begun to inform them that he is in fact going away. They don't entirely understand all of it, but he's begun to to lay it out there to them of what's about to happen. And here as he then begins to point them forward, to, to, to look forward to there will be a time when they will see him again. And it says there in verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, which we've done here now and we'll finish here shortly, it says 
that they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, we don't know for sure exactly how these events fall. It, it's in my opinion that as they left the house and as they began to make their way out of the city, that Jesus paused and that he began to pray. And it's that prayer that we have, the longest prayer of Jesus, that is recorded in the Gospel of John. And it seems to me that it's in that moment that they've left the house and they're out now outside of the city and they've yet to cross over the brook Kidron and the Kidron Valley to make their way up to the Mount of Olives. Because uh, at the end of Jesus' prayer in John 17, it says, And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. She and his disciples entered. The order of the events is maybe of less consequence, but I can't help but think as Jesus has just informed them of a new covenant, as he's begun to make them aware of, I'm going away and, 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 and there's a life for you to live. There's ministry for you to engage in. And then he begins to pray and he, he prays for himself and he prays for his disciples and then he prays for us. And what is it that Jesus prays for us in this in-between time? In verse 20 of chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, Jesus prays, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I've declared to them your name and will declare that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. That is what we operate in today. I firmly believe, though Jesus is likely praying many different things for us, I have wonderful insight into his prayer here in this moment for all believers as he begins to make his way to the cross. And I trust that Jesus is still praying this for his church today. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, once again, we pray and give you thanks, Lord. We give you thanks for your word, which you exalt above your own name, which gives us insight and direction and wisdom. We give you thanks for your spirit, Lord, your spirit that has drawn us unto repentance, your spirit that as believers has indwelt us and sealed us, your spirit that empowers us still today. Lord, help us to be one as the church, Lord. No division here. Such, Lord, that the world may know that you, Lord Jesus, are the Son of God as represented by your church. Help us to do that work, Lord, and to do it well, that we may bring glory to your name. Father, we love you and praise you. We give you thanks. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.